it still pains me, actually. If I were to zoom out from the position of a founder, I often think to myself, who am I to make these decisions? Like, you know, I have on a whim decided this is the next thing we're going to do. Like, this is the pivot we're going to do. But then I'm affecting people's real livelihoods. Welcome back to 40 Minute Mentor, the podcast on a mission to make mentorship more accessible by interviewing brilliant leaders who are building exceptional purpose-driven brands. Today, I'm joined by James Lowe, co-founder and CEO of Mana, the app designed to help everyone make a living by sharing their passion. They empower tech leaders, career advisors, teachers, and many others to host one-to-one sessions, sell digital content, offer live classes and build long-term follower basis who fund their work. Mana have raised an impressive £1.5 million in pre-seed funding led by Flash Ventures and Global Founders Capital and are growing rapidly. James started his entrepreneurial journey early, founding an education social enterprise at the age of 16 before following a more traditional founder path of consulting at McKinsey and time at a VC SoftBank Vision Fund, advising world-leading tech companies like Arm and Uber on how to grow sustainably, weather crises, and leverage their capabilities for social good. James and I recently met at a retreat for founders where I found his energy infectious and his vision for Mana super inspiring. So I'm really pleased he decided to join us on the podcast today. Thank you, James, for agreeing to be a 40-minute mentor. Welcome. Thank you so much. It's great to be here. Awesome. Well, let's kick off with some quick fire questions to warm you up. Please finish these sentences after me. My first ever job was writing speeches for my secondary school headmaster. Oh, wow. That's a good job. So was that was a paid gig? Yeah, it was. Yeah, it was. It was paying off my school fees. So <laughs> it was quite fun. <laughs> Love that. That's great. Brilliance to me means. It's probably a a balance between being empathetic, having deep ethical principles, and being very adaptable to the environment. Love that. And I completely agree. I think having like a strong moral code in business, you know, sometimes the bad guys have won, but I, I think increasingly the world and the youth of today are really looking to ethical companies and purpose driven companies. And that doesn't mean you can't have purpose and profit, but I think that really will stand great leaders uh, out from the rest. A misconception people have about me is? That I am extroverted. I am actually incredibly introverted. I'm so introverted that uh, on the MBTI, I think my my I rating is actually maxed out. (laughs) So I'm actually very introverted. But uh, I guess I force myself to be sociable. That's really interesting. And recently, you know, this has been an answer from a few founders. I think we all maybe assume that you know, to be a founder and a CEO, you have to be super extroverted, but that's clearly not the case. So, well, given that you are an introvert, thank you for coming on the podcast and sharing your story. That's really good of you. And finally, can you share something that we wouldn't learn from your CV? That could be a failure, setback, something in your career or life that you've learned a lot from. Yeah, there's quite a lot. <laughs> but uh, I, I guess I'll give you the quick fire numbers. I've been rejected by 130 VC funds in fundraising <laughs> so far. It's probably more to come. I have been rejected by at least 50 jobs, uh, if I count only the ones that I went through to the interview, right? So <laughs> if I count the ones that I applied for, I don't know how many there will be. But if I just count the ones I've been interviewing for, it's at least 50 have been rejected by. In fact, when I graduated from university, 
McKinsey was the only company that gave me an offer, and they were the last company to give me an offer. So if if I didn't have McKinsey, I was done. <laughs> I was just gonna go. So which is kind of crazy. I got incredibly lucky there, and I've been rejected by every ideal university I imagined I would want to go to when I was younger. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I still ended up very well. So yeah, you know that's a that's a different thing. But. Yeah, I mean, thank you for being so honest. I think that might be just what some of our listeners need to hear right now to, to show that you can go on to do incredible things and you know you're you're still relatively early into your career but you've achieved so much and uh, I, I mean what a great final option in McKinsey to start your career at but no thank you for sharing that I think everybody seems to assume that just because you're running a business that it's all been probably pretty easy to date especially with the names on your CV but uh, it's nice to know that there's been some struggle along the way and, uh, and lots of hard work and rejection I think the resilience to overcome that, you know, is, is a quality we see in a lot of the, the great founders that come on this podcast. So you clearly have that in, in spades. Thank you, James. It's great to kind of hear a little bit of into your story already, but I'd love to turn back time, find out a little bit more about you, uh, the younger James. What was your upbringing like? Uh, tell us a bit about what inspired you, uh, you know, to get out there and work. You created your first social enterprise, as I alluded to in the intro, at such a young age. So tell us a bit about you know, what life was like for you then and, and what inspired you to create that? Yeah, absolutely. So my opinion was, in many ways, when I was first born, it was a very classic sort of professional middle-class family in Hong Kong. And my dad was in a very successful job. My mom had just quit her job to become a housewife at the time. And so it was a very sort of beautiful nuclear family, <laughs> professional middle-class type thing. But I think for the following 16 years, it was basically a continual movement from bigger to smaller houses. <laughs> so, so I distinctly remember uh, in my, I think from, from age zero to age 12, we moved like five times or something like this. And every time we moved, it was to a smaller place. And what was going on was that my, my dad's career had taken a different turn. And he actually, you know, had me quite late, but he, he was already 48 when I was first born. And so you had this continual sort of change in his career and it sort of got worse and worse. It got really, really difficult. At the same time in Hong Kong, the financial situation was going through a massive change, right? So when I was three years old, there was a giant financial crisis in 1998. Then there was SARS in 2003, which crashed the whole economy. And it was effectively a mini version of COVID uh, that Hong Kong experienced at the time. And then you had 2007, 2008 with the, the global crisis. And so you basically had hit after hit, right? It, it was a really bad time. And I was very fortunate that I went to a fantastic school. And it was mainly because my dad had gone to that school when he was younger. And he, he was like a classmate with the headmaster at the time. Networked yourself into a nice school, even though you, you can't really pay for it anymore type thing. And that's how I actually got my first job. Because basically, towards the, the latter parts of my time at the school, uh, it was very difficult to, to sort of pay off the bills and everything. And so my headmaster sort of offered me a job to write his speeches. And <laughs> so I started paying bills from there, which was quite nice. So it's going through this whole transition. But what that experience gave me, and the reason why I then started the Education Social Enterprise, I think, is that for a really weird reason, it combined the privileged elites type background where I'm in school with all these rich kids and they're getting all these opportunities. We can kind of see what good looks like or what, what, what success looks like with, of course, you know, what's really going on in my family and actually seeing what it was like yeah, for everyone else. And, and this combination was very helpful. It became a very strong impetus in me to basically go, 
I have to find a way to use these skills to give back. And so that first social enterprise was actually a debating charity. And it was helping to train, you know, young students from uh, schools from disadvantaged socioeconomic backgrounds uh, to learn debating and build confidence. And then from there, I helped them with everything else, like going to university or going to better schools and so on and so forth. So, yeah, so that that's how it first started. I think it's, a, it's this weird combination socioeconomically in my, in my life. Wow, that's such an interesting story. And like, huge kudos to you for, for at such a young age creating something that clearly went on to have you know a real impact on a lot of people's lives and that sort of advancement of social mobility is something that we, we've talked a lot about in this podcast and is something I'm personally very passionate about I went to a school effectively one of the, the the original charity schools in the country it's a private school but the vast majority of kids that go there come from you know challenging backgrounds you know disadvantaged backgrounds and so I saw I grew up in this incredible melting pot of you know, race and socioeconomic background. And um, I think what I found there was just people getting the opportunity that they never would have had were it not for the school we went to, to fulfill their potential and go on to do great things. And I think that stayed with everybody from our school. And is as a result, the way the school is funded is people go on to do great things. And then if they are privileged enough to have enough money, they then pay for another kid to go through the school. So it's this kind of virtuous circle. So it really resonates with what you're saying. You know, building a business at such a young age is really hard. Like that's, I mean, I was playing football and being a bit of an idiot, probably at 16, uh, not really working that hard. You went out there and created something like this. So, you know, now you're in the hot seat again as a founder. What were some of the early learnings from that experience? Yeah, it's uh, quite a few. So I think the, there's probably three big things. The first is that uh, you need a business model, <laughs> which, uh, which I think, you know, back then I was very dedicated to the social mission. I was like, you know, we, we got to help people. And so it was a complete volunteer model when I first started, right? Uh, back in the day when I was 16, it was, you know, we had uh, 40 or 50 of my friends became volunteers for the first time. And then we coached like 400 students in the first year. And we were almost drunk on that success because what then happened was, the, you know, newspapers started covering us. You have tons of, uh, you know, the chief justice of Hong Kong became our patron. You have all these things happening uh, because people were saying, oh my God, altruism is so powerful. People are helping out and so on and so forth. And so we're almost drunk on that success. And the following year, it just broke, right? So you see these kids, you know, graduating to university or, you know, leaving their hometowns or changing schools and stuff like that. So the volunteer base starts breaking. And once it's done in a year, the motivation starts decreasing because there's no real sustainable incentive for them to keep doing it. And so we start having this situation where we have tons of students, but then we have these volunteers who drop out on the last minute, right, <laughs> or stuff like that. And so the whole charity started breaking. And so I think that was a really key thing that drove me later on to go, okay, you know, nonprofits are really cool and, and charities are incredibly important. Uh, but even when you're a charity, you need a business model. You need to create sustainable incentives for people. Uh, even if it doesn't mean you're making a profit, you need some kind of way to, to keep the structure going. So that's one really big piece of it. I think the second is just picking the right people to start something with. And I think when, when I first started that uh, social enterprise, I actually started with my uh, ex-girlfriend. <laughs> so we were in like a puppy love type situation. You know, like, oh my God, this is amazing, right? And Anyways, I think we were incredibly bought into the mission together. And she, she's an incredible person. And she, she's now a, she's a very successful barrister in Hong Kong as well. And so we, we did that together. But later on, what I started realizing was actually we hadn't had those really transparent, honest conversations about where our lives were actually going and therefore how much we could really commit to keep the organization going. Right. So we were, you know, in high school at the time, we were going to university later. Can we really still do this when we're 
going to university in a different country, right? Can we just do this when we come back in over summer, right? How much time do each of us really have to, to sort these things out? And so it became a very messy sort of crumbling type situation at the end because, you know, both of us hadn't had that conversation until it was too late. And then at the same time, you know, the sort of business itself was disintegrating because you, your volunteers were not coming anymore, your schools were disgruntled, right? stuff like that. So it became quite clear to me that it's about picking the right people and also having the transparent, honest conversations consistently and clearly so you can really keep the business going, even when people's motivations and directions change and you have, you have enough time to make those adaptations. So, so yeah, th- those two things, I think, were really helpful for what happened later on. Great advice. Really great advice. And I think that transparent conversation it remains true throughout a founder journey, throughout, a, 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 you know, as a leader. It's very easy when you're busy to assume that everyone's doing the right sorts of things and you're all on the same, you know, wavelength. But it's actually, I found for JBM, you know, we're an eight person business. Everyone's very busy. And then before you know it, you're like, actually, comms are down. Like people don't know exactly what's going on. And and that's something as a founder, like I'm continually working on because it just sometimes happens. So I think open, transparent comms, super important. You rejected your university offers and decided to go out on the streets and protest instead, which I think is, you know, admirable and bold can you tell our listeners just a bit about that decision to do that what was going on at the time and and how did your parents and teachers react to that sort of move absolutely yeah so the thing is when we look back in return it looks like some kind of principled stand or something like this where i'm like you know i gotta I got go do this the reality was more that i was just very confused <laughs> and so i was you know i was 16 i was just about a day from high school and um i was going on there was I started seeing, you know, this massive political change happening across uh, Hong Kong, right? And so you had the situation where Hong Kong people had been extremely frustrated for years since 1997, but they've been trying different methods of protest for years. So in 1997 to 2003, it was really about engaging in the legislature and trying to elect our own representatives and see whether they could say something for us. But then it didn't work, right? Like uh, the Chinese government never really budged and so democracy didn't happen. In 2003, a giant movement came on the streets because the Chinese government tried to introduce a national security law. And so you had this massive breakdown of communication between, you know, the the rebels and the government. And so 500,000 people on the streets. And this was a peaceful protest. And yet again, the government did nothing, but at least they retracted the policy. And then from 2003 onwards to 2008, you had more radical protests happening inside the legislature, right? So you would elect more, you know, radical left-wing people who would go in the legislature and start throwing bananas at the chief executive, right? Stuff like that. So you got got more radical. And really, it's in 2008 to 2012, that's when things started boiling over. People were like, we've tried everything. We've worked in the legislature. We've gone on the streets. We've gone radical in the legislature. It still hasn't worked. We have to do something more crazy. And so... In 2012, when the government announced they were going to create this national education policy, which effectively taught young kids to be patriotic to the Chinese government and so on and so forth, it suddenly created this bulk of a movement where people were like, we have to fight against this. And it was led by a 13-year-old kid, right? So this 13-year-old kid called Joshua Wong, he went on the TV, he said, you know, this, this policy doesn't make any sense, we have to fight against it. And it turned into this gigantic movement across the, across the streets. And so by mid-2012, I was a 16-year-old, I was about to graduate from university. I knew that I hated the degree I was about to go into, right? So I, my, my parents wanted me to become a lawyer, and I didn't want to, right? I knew also that I cared very much about the political situation. And then if I left and went to the UK, I would not be able to engage in this at all. I knew also that many of my friends were involved in the movement, 
right? And they were going out on the streets and they were trying to fight for their rights. And I felt an immense sense of guilt about what I was, uh, what I was about to do. And so combining all these things, it, in my mind, I was just incredibly confused. I was like, my heart is saying something completely different from my mind. And what am I going to do? And so in the end, just literally out of, uh, you know, anger one night reading the news, I just, you know, rejected all my university offers on UCAS and didn't tell my parents. <laughs> so I was just like, you know, this is not happening. I'm not going to go. Right. Now, you know, the offers usually come in in January, right? So I did that pretty early. And then I went for my exams and all kinds of stuff and I actually did pretty well in the exams. And so I, I would have hit my conditional offers, like, uh, you know, with the exam results I got. And so my parents were just expecting us to just, let's go, <laughs> let's go to the UK, that's happening. And then I was like, hey, guys, I'm going to go on the streets. And this was, by that point, it was like July or so in 2012. And that was the climax of the movement. That, that was when you know, things were really going crazy. And so around that time, what happened was a, a bunch of my friends were involved in the protests. They asked me, hey, do you want to come join and help figure this thing out? And I joined them and uh, I went on the streets. And my parents were just, I think anger is not enough to describe it. <laughs> but they were, they, they genuinely thought I was throwing away my future, right? So it was, you know, he's not going to become a lawyer. He's not going to university, and now he's going on the streets in some illegal protest. So yeah, that's how it, it all happened. <laughs> wow! I, I look, I have just unbelievable amounts of admiration for the bravery of that decision and for supporting your friends and 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 a cause that is really important to you. I think you know we see whatever your political persuasion over here. There's a lot of stuff that you know I see on a daily basis or you know, a lot of people talk about that you're frustrated with. And I'd imagine there are probably people listening that have wanted to get up and take to the streets and probably probably some have. But there's often a lot, a lot at stake to make those sorts of stands or make those public stands. Uh, and a lot of us aren't brave enough to to put ourselves above the parapet to do so. So like huge, huge kudos. And, and, and I think, you know, it ultimately has paid off since despite that, you know, what your parents might uh, have seen as a, a blip. <laughs> um, you've gone on to have this fantastic career, you know, at McKinsey and SoftBank, a vision founder. So why don't we talk a bit about that before we jump into Mana? Like, how did those experiences shape you? And I guess particularly, what are the skills and, you know, learnings from McKinsey and SoftBank that have helped you now that you are a founder? Yeah, so I think McKinsey and SoftBank were very distinctly different. McKinsey is in many ways a very structured career path with a very strong company identity that holds people together even after they leave. It's a very powerful type of almost cult-like identity, which is quite interesting. I think most of the things I learned at McKinsey were not hard skills. So things like, you know, PowerPoint, Excel, or, you know, even industry-specific knowledge when you're consulting for a particular company, none of those things were really directly helpful for what, what happened later. The things that were incredibly helpful were, I think, broadly two things. They're all soft skills. Um, one of them is basically being able to influence from a position of weakness. So, you know, when you're a consultant, you are often a 20-something-year-old who has zero industry knowledge. Right? You, you don't actually know what you're talking about. Uh, you can go for as much analysis and PowerPoint as you can do, but you don't really know what you're talking about. But you're placed in this position where you have to influence the CEO to believe in something. And often what's going on is you're actually almost summarizing and synthesizing what their employees are really saying that the CEO hasn't listened to for years. Right? And you're putting them in some kind of actionable package to tell the CEO, hey, actually, this is what you should do. And that trains you in many, many different ways. But the most important thing, I think, is, is that you, you learn to persuade someone even when you're in a position of weakness, when you can't force them to do something, you have no power to override them, but you know something is right. And how do you sort of make that argument? That's one part of it. 
And then the second piece is that the world really is functioned almost purely on relationships. And I think that was a really key piece of this uh, in that when I observe how McKinsey works, it's probably the most powerful network in the world simply by having these consultants who usually come from very privileged backgrounds who come in for a few years and then they sort of let you go, right? They just let you go off to do whatever you want, start a company, go to work for a corporate, so on and so forth. But these people all end up being clients. Right? And so, so you have this absurd thing where McKinsey's you know, embedded like 80% of Fortune 500 companies in the C-suite right here. You, you have this incredible access. And McKinsey's entire business really is built on that. And the key thing is it's not just that sort of, oh, they all work for McKinsey type thing. Many people will work for the same company but never feel an identification with that company. But it's that in a very short period of time, they almost inculcate this uh, identity in you so that even when you leave, you call yourself a McKinseyite, which is kind of crazy. Uh, and so, so when you look at this, it's like the, the world is functioning based on relationships and it's functioning based on these incredibly powerful cultural identities that people drag on with them afterwards. So those two things were incredibly helpful because then when I started building as a company, when you're pitching to investors, you're pitching from a position of weakness to influence someone. When you're getting an employee to do something, really, you're actually pitching from a position of weakness because they could be doing much better things. They could be working for a much more stable job. They could do all the, they have so much optionality. And you're trying to convince them that your, your mission actually works. And then when you're building a company at scale, you start realizing you shouldn't be optimizing for you know, the, the sort of really mechanical stuff like, you know, how do I make another spreadsheet to plan out my next business plan? You're actually optimizing for how do I build the strongest cultural identity inside the company possible? And how can I build the networks necessary so that I have positions of leverage, like across, you know, the people I know to help support the things that we're doing. So those, I think, were the key things um, I learned from McKinsey that, that became, I think, very important when I became a founder. Yeah, yeah that's super helpful. And, and I guess with, uh, with SoftBank, you had the opportunity to work with you know, incredible founders and operators, I'm sure who many of whom left a, a lasting impression. Is there any one or group of people that particularly sort of influenced you, perhaps when thinking of it as a founder now? And that could be good or bad. I'm sure there were there were a bit of both. But yeah, share with our listeners, if you don't mind, um, anyone that particularly stood out. For sure. Yeah. So SoftBank was a whole different thing for McKinsey. Like when I went to SoftBank, it was like a Wild West type place. Right? So you have the, these incredible amounts of capital. And then you have all these sort of very senior figures who had been senior in other companies and came in as managing partners and so on and so forth using the capital in a very sort of swashbuckling type way. Right? So, so very quickly, you, you feel like itself is started up, but then it's, it's exploding in every direction. And so I think the main things I learned there were really about, it's, it's almost what not to do when you're growing a company, uh, that the things that you need to be really, really careful about. The chief, chief among which, and, and I was on the turnaround team for WeWork uh, during the IPO failure in 2019. I was also on a team with Arm when we were helping them with emergent acquisitions. And you sort of see this incredible thing inside WeWork where WeWork's almost become this pantomime, like sort of joke, like for, for the whole industry right now of like, you dumped like 47 billion valuation on this kind of company, right? that thing. But I really remember when I went to WeWork for the first time in the middle of that crisis in the New York headquarters trying to figure things out you sense that people in that company really, really believe in the mission, right? It's this incredibly powerful energy and spirit that's in that company. And you actually feel it in their locations as well. So when you walk into WeWork, it feels materially different from Regis, right? It's, it's, you feel like the community managers are in it. There's a vibe going on. People are kind of you know, going at it, right? And that is actually magic. Like they, they did create a fantastic product. 
the mistake, I think, was that they had a business model that wasn't very sustainable at scale. They overexpanded into countries that were deeply unprofitable and which were just on a unit economic basis not profitable, right? So the rental costs are way too high for the amount of occupancy they could achieve, stuff like that. And they spent money as if they were making that amount of money, right? So, so they would get funded like 10 billion. So they would, they would spend it almost as if they were making net profit of 10 billion a year to, to, you know, grow like this. And then so you, you end up in the situation where the bureaucratic structures break. The incentives go all wrong for the salespeople in the company. The leadership gets almost drunk on that success, right? And, and you just become this sort of implosion type scenario. And so what I learned there was basically that it's not enough to build something that people love. It's not enough to build a company where your employees are obsessed with the mission. And it's not even enough to be an inspiring founder, right? Like someone who actually can share an idea and make people buy into it. It's incredibly important to correlate all that to a pace of growth that actually makes sense and which is actually responsible and sustainable over time. And I think that that was a painful lesson that I, I guess everyone in venture capital has been learning for the last few years. And, and it's perhaps more clearer now than, than it has been in the last year or so as well. So, yeah. Really, really fascinating. What an interesting insight you, you had to those sorts of companies. And I guess uh, from the WeWork side, perhaps uh, some people in a sort of circumstances that you'd learn, you know, you saw some of the good, I guess, as you mentioned, the magic that they had, but then you also saw the downside of growth at all cost VC-backed businesses where perhaps vanity and other things can get in the way of, uh, you know, building a sustainable business. It seems like things have turned around quite a lot of WeWork in recent times, but uh, definitely, a, you know, a high profile example of the way it can go. We've sort of alluded to your latest venture, Mana, in this conversation so far, but, but I think we're at that point now where everyone's itching to learn more. So tell our listeners a bit about what the company does and where the inspiration came for it. Sure. So our current product looks like a TikTok for learning. So you have a personal feed of learning content. Then when you like something, you dive deeper with live classes and one-to-ones. And so the idea is basically you could find what you're interested in, in this sort of very personalized feed, and then find very relatable people that you could learn from in a live and deeply engaging way. So what's the problem we're trying to solve? Basically, I think my co-founder and I, uh, so Bobby and, and I, we were very frustrated with a single thing, which is we really want to help someone find their passion. And it sounds a bit sort of fluffy, right? It's like, do I need a product to find your passion? Right? It's like, you know, am I going to do that? But what we realized is that when you look at all the learning products out there today, they all kind of assume that you know what you want. So you go on a massive online course, it's basically you searching for a specific course in a specific topic and then finding the five-star rating one and then going for it, right? You download Duolingo, you literally already want to learn languages already. You go for a cohort-based course. You don't just need to know the subject. You need to know this is the particular person I want to learn from. I'm going to pay you $1,000 up front. And the same thing goes across the whole education system. When you look at like high schools and universities, it's going, let the student pick the subjects they want to study, pick the course they want to do, and so on and so forth. But then when you actually talk to an average learner, they're not saying, how do I find the best math course in the world? Right? <laughs> they're saying, you know, do I even want to do math in the first place? Right? Like, what am I truly interested in? What are my strengths? I don't even know what I'm really good at. And you know, what can I channel those strengths into? And so we became fascinated by that problem. Uh, and when we really sort of started digging into how do people think about this, we realized that most of the time it's, it's a bit of like a two-step process. So the first step is the serendipitous discovery. So usually people don't go on Google and search, what am I good at? <laughs> they won't do that like five times in a row. You know, what, what tends to happen is it might be chatting to a friend. It might be there on social media. They're browsing through, let's say, 10 posts. And out of them, there's one that's super inspiring and interesting, right? There's a nugget of wisdom there that they hadn't thought about before. 
and it triggers them. They go, oh my God, it's so fascinating, right? It might even be watching a TED talk and someone makes an argument and you go, wow, this is interesting. But then now that that's a very powerful impetus to learn. But all these platforms are designed to distract as quickly as possible. Right? So you go on TikTok, you go on Twitter, you go on LinkedIn, you go on YouTube. The next video is coming up. So you just forget about it, right? It goes away. And then when you get to that second step of like out of 100 people, maybe one keeps going, right? They, they have that idea in their head and they start Googling about it. Now, that's when you'd see this big split between the privileged elites and the average person, right? You have the privileged elites who say, hey, I have this friend in this area and I'm going to ask them, what should I read? Who should I talk to? What community should I be part of? And that accelerates their learning 10 eights. But then when you talk to an average person, they're saying, you know, I have no idea what to do. Like, I'm very confused. I start Googling about it. I find this massive amount of information, not curated in any way, ranked mostly by popularity instead of value. And they get so frustrated, they go, maybe I should do a course about it. So they go search on a course platform, they find a course, start for a day, and then they give up. <laughs> like, oh my God, I can't do this anymore. So true, we've all been there. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> um, so we look at this and went, okay, this is really broken, right? But somehow we know that everyone has the same problem, which is they don't even know what they're good at, they don't know what's their passion, what they want to do, but then we solve only for that last step. Like, what's the best course in the world for you to do this? So we were like, okay, how do we build the serendipitous discovery that you get mostly from social media today? That's deeply personalized, but serendipitous enough that you can stretch outside of your comfort zone a bit and connect that to finding relatable people who could give you fantastic advice and fantastic relevant content to help you master something. And almost replicating what the privileged elites have, right? They have this Rolodex of friends who know their stuff, who will be able to curate stuff for them, who will be able to give them advice on communities to join and so on and so forth. And so we were like, let's build that all into one one-stop shop like for you to really figure this thing out and so so yeah that that's how we first started and that's the, the you know real vision of where we want to go absolutely awesome uh such a great concept and I, again you can see the social mobility aspect of you know there's the, the behind it as well in terms of democratizing access to these sorts of things that's that's really exciting and, and much needed I really hope you're enjoying today's episode so far. But before we continue hearing from today's mentor, I wanted to take a minute to give a shout out to our series sponsors, Alchemist. Alchemist is an industry-leading learning and development company using immersive and interactive experiences to help increase employee engagement, levels of happiness, and achievement across your teams and overall productivity. Alchemist presents L&D departments with an opportunity to innovate and be bold in their approaches to blended learning. If you love the sound of this as much as we do here at JBM, then head over to thisisalchemist.com forward slash 40 Minute Mentor to learn more. And now back to our 40 Minute Mentor. I know you've been on a journey, you know, from concept to implementation. And I believe that, you know, running used to be a, a tutoring platform, which didn't quite turn out the way you wanted it to. You had to pivot. So tell our listeners, if you don't mind, just a bit about how that initial concept fail and what could you have done differently now that you kind of uh, look back with some some hindsight yeah absolutely uh, and we're still in that sort of gradual pivoting process as well and so i don't think we have all the answers so this is what happened basically when we first started as a company the problem that we believe we're solving is actually quite similar to what we're describing now right it, it's still basically you know people need to find their passion it's very difficult for them to discover what they want to learn how can we solve discovery and learning but the problem was that we started off the wrong edge by going where is the most monetizable market that we can see now let's try to tackle that first and we concluded at the time it was k12 tutoring 
right? So it, it was a very obvious existing market. People were paying for it. Let's go for it. And so we went on Reddit and found as many students as we can. <laughs> we basically went on calls with them to like chat about their needs and stuff like that. And over, I think, a three-month period, we started realizing that the product market fit just wasn't there, right? So you could see how basically in K-12 tutoring, the real customer is actually the parent. But everything we're describing is actually helping the student discover what they're passionate about. And the problem is that every time the student tries to pay for something, they're going back to the parent, right? And the parent's going, improve your exam scores, get into university, do all these things, right? They don't care about your passion at all. And so we were kind of, the business model was solving for the parent's problems. And the actual product was trying to solve for the student's problems. And they were often in conflict. And so you get this real difficulty in trying to sort it out. And so we ended up figuring out that's not going to work and we need to pivot. And so we started looking back at the user interviews and going, what are these people really interested in? Are they thinking about physics problems or are they thinking about something else? And, you know, obviously all, all these kids were saying, actually, I don't care about getting another homework app. There's so many of them out there. But I've always wanted to be a fashion designer. I have no idea how to even get started. Right? I've always wanted to be a hardware designer. Is that even a job, right? How can I do that? Or I've always been obsessed with plants. Like, is there jobs that involve planting trees? Like, you know, it's like this. <laughs> so, so, so people have these incredible imaginations of who they could be that they mostly get from social media, right? And they kind of go, how do I pave that path? Because all my teachers are telling me is, do physics, chemistry, biology. The best case scenario, become a doctor. If not, become a lawyer, then become a banker, then become a consultant, right? It's, it's, it's all sort of paved out. And so we started looking into that and going, actually, it's very interesting because the people who can offer them the best advice are often the people who are similar to them, but a few steps ahead. So it's not that if I want to become a fashion designer, I should now talk to Tom Ford, right? Tom Ford can't really help me on that. But, you know, a, a, a university student who just graduated in fashion design, who's about to go into her first fashion job, will be a fantastic, like, mentor to this high school kid who wants to do that. And the same thing goes for that fashion designer who's just started their job. A fashion designer who's done it for five or six years will be a fantastic person uh, to give them mentorship. And so we started pivoting away from K-12 into these career topics, but really a very loose definition of career, right? Not the traditional careers, but this broad set of careers. And also just looking at this matching methodology, right? How do we find people who are relevant to you, but a few steps ahead to put you together? So that's where we went. Now, then the pivots that came after, I think, were more pragmatic. It was the fact that we realized that this market doesn't exist yet. And if we just tried to sort of open it up, no one's coming in. <laughs> it was just, uh, you could see our early numbers. It was horrendous. Like, I think we had 700 people sign up before the platform came out, mostly because we, we were hyping it up on LinkedIn. And then the second month, we had like 300 users. And then the third month, we had like 200. <laughs> dropping precipitously. So, so we we're like, okay, this is not going to work. We probably have to pivot a bit. And so we made uh, two pivots. The first one was to basically go, oh, could we start with the influencers who are already sharing these concepts. We built a tool for them to share those ideas and then drag them to the platform. And so we built this BioLink functionality, very similar to Linktree, but also has monetization capabilities built on top so they could sell one-to-ones, they could sell live streams, all kinds of stuff in one place. And we gave it to them and we were like, hey, you can use it on TikTok and Instagram in your BioLink. And we only picked the influencers who are teaching skills so that eventually we could bring them to our platform. So that was the first thing we did. And that caused an explosion in user numbers from there. Right. So it went from zero to like around 54,000 monthly active users, you know, really quickly. And then the next thing we did was we realized now we have this base, we could build a mobile app in our original vision. But now when you click into that creator's bio link, it pops up with a little chip at the top that says, hey, you could download the app and you could see even more of this stuff. Right? And so it turns their audience into ours, you know, over time. So yeah, th those are the sort of main changes to date, I think, that we've gone through. 
that's absolutely amazing what a great pivot and uh, yeah good for you for having the foresight to do that i think there are founders out there that flog a dead horse and it kind of gradually get more and more demoralized at the way the business is going but uh, by pivoting you've obviously created something that's just right for the time and uh, and clearly growing very quickly for anyone listening that might be in a similar point with their business about you know to pivot or not what advice do you have for them and and, and other particular things that helped you with that decision you know whether it was about pivoting or drawing a line under it and letting the business go like if you don't mind just sharing a bit about your thought process and and any pointers you'd have as somebody that's successfully gone through this. Yeah, absolutely. And funny enough, we're still in the pivoting process right now. So this is actually a very top of mind from my head as well. I think the key things, there's sort of three components in my head. So there's the mental component inside of you. There is the business component of uh, how we actually think about the problem. And then there is the sort of broader team component to this, right? Or how you bring people along with you. So on that mental component, I think it's, it's actually in many ways the most important one, which is, Whenever you decide on pivot, it's really looking deep inside of you and going, what is the core motivation that made you start the company in the first place? Usually it's not really a solution. It's a problem, right? It's a problem that you're really passionate about solving. And sort of going back to the core motivation and going, is your current product really solving that problem? And if it isn't, can you come up with new ways to try to solve that problem? And do those new ways actually excite you? If the answer is, for example, actually, I'm not even passionate about a problem. I was passionate about the original solution. It doesn't work and now I'm losing motivation. Or if it's things like I'm passionate about the problem, but whatever I come up with right now feels like it's not going to work. That's when you kind of know, regardless of where you pivot, that you won't have enough of the energy and motivation to bring everyone with you, right? And so that internal introspection is incredibly important, I think, to basically find that real underlying thing in your belly that's making you continue. And if you can find it, it's a good idea to continue. And the second piece is on the business. And I think here it's the key things are first to treat sunk costs as sunk costs. Like you build a product, it hasn't worked, it's there now. And whatever you do now, if you try to bolt on the existing product, you'll probably end up with the wrong answer, right? You'll probably end up just, you know, mildly pivoting without really solving the problem. So it's important to treat them sunk costs as sunk costs and go back to the first principles of like, this is the problem we're trying to solve. What's the best possible solution we can imagine to that problem? And then if there are things from the current product we can leverage, amazing. If there's absolutely nothing, that's still not necessarily a problem, as long as you have enough runway to, to allow yourself the, the room to experiment. So sunk cost is sunk cost. And then the second part of the business piece is keeping yourself incredibly lean and fast. And that's often a muscle for teams to develop as well when they're becoming slightly larger. It's that you may have these bureaucratic structures built out where you have this engineering manager and underneath you have four engineers and they're waiting for engineering manager to cast down what has to be done, all that kind of stuff. But when you're going through a pivot, you can dispense with all that structure if you want to, right? You could basically go, cool, we have 10 people. How are we going to use them to brainstorm in the most effective way, right? So for us, for example, we literally ran a hackathon and we split the team to three to run a hackathon where each of the sub teams have a, a commercial person and a dev, right? And they each work on one of the ideas with a very structured deliverables uh, at the end of the hackathon. And we talk every week like to see where each other are and learn from each other and, and, and sort of get to the end state where then the, uh, the the company makes a decision on where to go, right? But basically, you can dispense of these structures as long as you give a sense of purpose to the team to almost participate in the journey to figure things out. The final piece is basically the team. And like, how do you bring people along? And I always think the only real policy here is transparency. Uh, I think it's incredibly dangerous to be pondering a pivot and not let the team know that and let them continue building and building and building and building and then suddenly jump in and go, I've decided to pivot to this whole new thing. Sorry, guys, let's let's go, right? And let's move, right? You need that 
transparency to bring the team along with you, it's going to be incredibly hard. People are going to lose motivation in the short term, but you have to have those hard conversations in order to bring people with you. And the same thing goes with your investors. Same thing goes with your co-founders. Same thing goes with the leaders in your company. But it's really giving everyone that, that sense of like, we're going to solve this together. This is the approach that we're going to go about it, not necessarily the answer. And so I still struggle often with this question of, is democracy necessarily a good idea? <laughs> like in a, you know, in a company when you're pivoting, right? It should we let everyone vote on where to go next, right? Or stuff like this, right? That's still a really hard problem to cross. I think the bottom line is that you need transparency with the team to give them the confidence in the process to find the next pivot that needs to happen. So yeah, th- those three key things. Super helpful. Great advice. And I know as part of that pivot, you, you had to downsize the team, which is not an enjoyable task for any founder. And I've had to do it, it myself over the years probably the worst time of my JBM career. So can you share with our listeners, I guess, particularly for anyone that might be in that position now, given the economic climate, uh, about your experience, how you dealt with it, who did you lean on when when making those decisions and, and what your takeaways were from it, uh, I guess, particularly with a lens of advice for anyone else that might be in that situation now? Yeah, absolutely. I think the way we handled it was we started from what the pivot is going to be, what are the real resources we'll need as a team to make that happen? And then, of course, there are some financial constraints as well of like how long the runway remains and, and therefore how large the team can be. So it's, it's the hard constraints at the front. And then it becomes a, okay, you know, who's going to stay, who's going to go? And there I leaned a lot on, you know, obviously my co-founder, but also our, our sort of VP of engineering as well. Us three as a team, we really had to sort of dig deep into this and go, you know, where do we think this is going to end? And so those are all very important. The next thing we did was we decided that we had to do the process fast. We had to do it responsibly and transparently. And we have to do it not in the context of just letting them go and leaving it, but actively helping people with their next role. So we had all the conversations mostly on the same day. We had really transparent conversations as well. Like it wasn't a sort of, hey, it's not that bad, you know, that kind of thing. It was really a, hey, we're, we're making this really difficult decision to pivot as a company. These are the needs that will come in the future. And unfortunately, it means, you know, they can't stay. And in addition to that, to really leverage our networks to help with even something as simple as, you know, what does the CV look like, right? You know, how do we frame their time in this company in the best possible light? Are there like any startups out there that we can introduce them to, so on and so forth, uh, that could hopefully make it better? None of those things made it easier, right? So I think it still pains me, actually. If I were to zoom out from the position of a founder, I often think to myself, who am I to make these decisions? Like, you know, I have on a whim decided this is the next thing we're going to do. Like, this is the pivot we're going to do. But then I'm affecting people's real livelihoods, right? And and people who really believed in the company and and have a a vested interest in it. And so even now, it it doesn't make it easier. And it often makes me question, like, am am I doing the right thing? What's the best way to navigate ourselves out of this? But yeah, I think it's the business reality and the constraints that, that then set the hard limits of what you can do. Yeah, absolutely. And and I think at the core of what is sadly sometimes an absolute necessity to save the business and, and ensure there is a business, hard calls need to be made. And I think so much of yeah the reaction to those conversations uh, will really depend on how that's communicated, the empathy shown for the individuals that are impacted and the support thereafter for what is obviously going to become a stressful time. And I think clearly you went above and beyond for, for your team and that's something that we would encourage all clients that yeah having to make those sorts of difficult calls any founders there about doing it in a humane way you know and then 
you know, going above and beyond to support your team because they will remember it. And that, that you know, the quickest way to damage your employer brand is to cut too deep, too aggressively, too quickly. And as we've seen, uh, you know, sadly, way too often, just in a really just kind of callous way, you know, just a Zoom call and no access to anything thereafter. And that's just obviously completely the wrong way to go about it. And you'll get called out and it's just it's just not worth it. Do it in the right way if you have to. But it is part of business. And I think anyone, you know, listening to this that might be in a corporate role right now that like we get calls every day about getting into the startup world, this is one of the realities of it. And you know, we have an obligation as a podcast that that talks a lot uh, to founders and investors and a lot about the startup ecosystem to share you know the full picture not just the sexy unicorn stuff that we talk about but also the the harsh reality of startup life where things do change sometimes cuts are made and uh, it does impact a lot of people so yeah hence the need for risk appetite and also to you know don't put all your eggs in one basket all the time Thank you so much for being so honest, James, and vulnerable about a thing that I'd imagine was really heart-wrenching and difficult for you. But, um, you know, it sounds like the business is on a really good trajectory now. And I think, again, that the way you dealt with it stands you in good stead for the future. You've been on this incredible journey with Mano, and it, it seems like it's going to, you know, continue at a great pace in lots of exciting times around the corner. You're also building a really purpose-driven brand. We talked about some of the things you're trying to achieve and you know, the disruptive nature of it. And I love companies, I love founders that have purpose at their core. And actually our candidates are most interested in working for those types of companies. So tell us a bit about the culture you're creating, you know, and how you are going about hiring talent when you do. What, what is it you look for in candidates and how does that marry up with the culture you're trying to build? Absolutely, yeah. And so in terms of what we look for in candidates, the way I often like to frame it is every time I'm interviewing someone, I want to feel like I'm learning something from them. And it's a pretty interesting combination uh, of skills that, that that's needed to deliver that. In that, that person needs to, of course, have some degree of domain expertise in what they're doing. Something that I don't know, which uh, when I'm talking to them, I feel fascinated by going, oh, wow, this is super interesting. And even, and this doesn't really correlate with experience. Like, uh, you know, our 18-year-old head of growth, for example, <laughs> teaches me a lot every day about what social media really is like, right? The creation is like and so on because he's a youtuber himself with thirty five thousand subs and so on and so forth right so so uh, so he teaches me a lot too every day so it's not correlated to experience but it's key that they have some kind of domain expertise that, that, that that's helpful but the second is they need to have a personality that says they're not afraid to speak up and question things even in positions of massive power imbalances and an interview is a classic example of power imbalance. You have a situation where you're, you're, you're almost trying to ask that person for something uh, and you're in no position and no leverage to make a decision. And, 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 and at that point, if you're still willing to question things and still willing to sort of go, I think this is wrong or I think this is a better way to do it and so on and so forth, that's a very powerful character trait. And the final, final piece uh, is that they need to have that empathetic personality to explain things without being condescending. Right. So to be able to engage in a debate in a constructive way and to explain their point of view without without dominating. And so when those three things exist, that, that domain expertise, that ability to explain things in a constructive way, that ability to have empathy, so on and so forth. Like when these things come together, you have that experience where you're in an interview and you feel like you're learning something constantly. And, and that's what I'd really love to feel like uh, talking to someone. And linking back to, I guess, the culture as a company as a whole, the way we think about it is, we need a lot of transparency, a lot of flat hierarchy where people could really, you know, own the things they're doing and a lot of faith in youth. 
And so, you know, each of these, uh, I think we've, we've covered a little bit already, but in particular on that sort of faith and youth piece, you know, th- we have an 18-year-old head of growth, uh, as I mentioned earlier, who's a YouTuber and who understands our customers more than anyone. Our head of strategy is really a 21, 22-year-old, like recent university graduate, right? But who is incredibly flexible and her ability to flex across use cases is, is incredible. The oldest person in the team right now, I think, is like 31. <laughs> so, uh, and so we're an incredibly young team. But that gives us a lot of flexibility, a lot of spirit and energy to, to keep pursuing the, the, the right things. And that marries up with that, you know, flat hierarchy where, you know, everyone can own their bit and really interact with each other to build. And that transparency of saying, you know, uh, uh, I, I was mildly notorious for one with my team where I literally showed them the PNL line by line. <laughs> like, just, just, just going, okay, this is where we're at as a company, or this is the wrong way. And here's like all the investors who pulled out and rejected us this week, you know, like, you know that kind of thing, right? So, so you're sort of going transparent just to keep the team going together. And so, so yeah, those are core tenants of our culture and how, how we think about interviewing. Amazing. Thank you, James. Definitely the sort of company I'd imagine lots of people listening to will uh, will want to be involved with. So prepare yourself for a shed load of applications. We're, we're sadly close to the end, I'm conscious of time. So just two more quick questions and then we'll get to our, our wrap up. You've obviously raised you know, a really impressive pre-seed round, 1.5 million. There are going to be founders listening to this going through that savage process that you've alluded to with lots and lots of knockbacks and I'd imagine questioning themselves left right and center depending on the outcome of certain pitches so just can you just share a little bit about your learnings any advice or tips that have helped you secure that funding and uh, yeah any any words of encouragement for founders going through it at the moment yeah, absolutely. And so first of all, to put in context, that pre-seed round happened in a very, very bull market. And so I'm pretty sure that's that's almost impossible to replicate right now. And so I wouldn't look at that and go, that was very impressive. When I look at that, I go, we were beneficiaries of a very advantageous market. When we think about fundraising, I think there's two big things in my head. The first is that the process of fundraising really isn't us trying to cave to what an investor wants, as in us trying to sort of create what the investor is looking for. It is actually a matching process of finding the investors who are looking for someone like you (laughs) and who you end up being the best possible version of of that to them. And so what I would optimize for then in the the process, instead of trying to look for the biggest name investors and try to build what they want, I would reverse that and go optimize for the quickest no's you could get, right? So get a no as quickly as you can because you know that investor is not the right person, right? Uh, And the, the fund's thesis is not compatible with you. And also, when you do that, your mind then accepts no's a lot better, right? Because you, you feel like you're actually filtering through the no's to get to the yeses. So optimize with the quick no's. And then when you do find funds that have a thesis that's extremely aligned with what you're trying to build, who understand uh, and will come across in conversation and come across in what they write and all sorts of things, they, who understand what you're trying to do, then optimize for, you know, what's the best possible case you could make that you're the bet they should make in that area. Because in many cases, what VCs are going is they have these theses and they need to make a, a very small number of bets in each of these theses that they'll ultimately pay off. And you need to make the case for why you're the best possible bet they can make. And so that's the first big piece. It's basically that it's, it's not you caving to the investors. It's actually you filtering through the nose to find the right investors for you. And the second big piece is that really optimize for the right investor over the right amount. You could raise half the amount of money and still make do if it's the right investor. If you feel like there's great chemistry, they really support what you're doing, they have deep conviction in you as human beings, they're willing to give you freedom to pursue the things you want to do. That's far, far more important 
than going to a situation where you raise the, the amount, but you get all these investors who you don't agree with, and you, you get this messy cap table, all these types of things that will take years to solve. And the biggest piece there is that it's a marriage that you can't get out of, right? There's not even a divorce procedure. <laughs> like it's essentially, you know, a lifelong marriage. <laughs> and so, uh, so you have to optimize right people. Yeah. But yeah, yeah, that, that's what I would think about. Fantastic advice. No, I really appreciate that, James. And I think one other thing that you've been pretty vocal about is your feelings about the VC industry, how some VCs sadly don't hold up their promise to put founders first. So can you just share briefly just your observations, your experience as a founder, and then just share a little bit of your thoughts about what needs to change in the VC industry to kind of make sure that that support really is there? Yeah. So I think my my perspective of VC today is basically this. It's an industry that proclaims they're looking for outlier opportunities because, of course, outlier opportunities are the only way they make the money back, right? So if you bet on something no one else is betting on, valuations are lower, the possibility of it succeeding, if it does succeed, is, is going to pay back the fund and so on and so forth. But in reality, it goes for FOMO deals, right? <laughs> so they, they say they're looking for outliers, but actually holding in on the same deals <laughs> with massively inflated valuations, often on stupid business models, right? So it's a deep inconsistency in how they think about things. And second, it's an industry that's incentivized to, for lack of a better term, F over founders, right? Because their, their entire you know, financial structure is to basically optimize for the small number of wins instead of the, the long tail and helping them succeed, right? And so it really is to F over most of the founders and hope that one or two of them become successful and double down on them. That's the real financial structure. But who then say to every founder, they're founders first, which I don't believe they can be, even if they try to. And finally, the third, it's that they're mostly consist of people who haven't built anything, but are at best fantastic pattern recognition, but at worst are literally just people who've been through professional services and are now switching into a sexier career, but who then tell founders they can add enormous amounts of value. And the reality is most of them can't. Right? And so when you look at this sort of VC structure, it's like, it's broken, right? It, it doesn't really work, right? They're, they're not really founders first. They can't really help you on the most important questions. And like as a structure as a whole, they're not picking the outlier founders. In fact, they're most of the time crowding around failed deals. And that's why when the market implodes, they implode together. And so I think if I were talking to VCs very sort of transparently today and going, you know, what needs to change? I believe what needs to happen is instead of saying, let's try our best to be founders first, it's actually to be incredibly transparent about what their real incentives are and where they could really help. And acknowledging that most of the time, the answer is going to be a no, right? And optimizing for those no's instead of using it as a data collection exercise. Right now, you see tons of like VC uh, investors who will spend ages asking you for data, getting into your data rooms, asking for every KPI on earth, going for four or five calls, and then saying no, even though they actually knew very early on in the process that it was going to be a no, simply because they're trying to map out the competitive landscape. The reality is it doesn't help them and doesn't help the companies. So being really transparent about that and optimizing for no's. And then being transparent with the founder to say, hey, look, our fund is structured such that we need two or three winners to make a billion, right? And we need to believe that you can make a billion. And at the moment that becomes very unlikely, you become a write-off, right? So it's like, this is the thing we're going to do, and this is the things we're not going to do. And the final piece is basically going where you can add value, being very clear about what exact value that means. And most of the time, it probably means introductions and relationships. It doesn't mean operational support. And if you can't actually operationally be involved in the business because you don't have the relevant experience for it, don't ask for board seats with voting power like, and, and actively try to intervene. And even if you take a board seat, 
try your best to sort of refrain from operational uh, intervention and instead focus on relationship building or supporting on capital raising, stuff like that, where you have real expertise and real support capabilities. And so that's what I think should happen in VC. And, and the, the best possible version of this I've ever seen was actually Fred Destin's fund like Stride VC. And, and I love the way they frame their manifesto, where they basically say very clearly, we're very easy to approach, but very difficult to get money from. And I think that's exactly what like that. That's really what should happen. It's a great example. And I love that strapline, dissent is welcome. Yeah, we're very lucky to have Cleo Sham as a former 14-minute mentor and a JBM SOS board advisor. So uh, yeah, fans of Stride. And uh, yeah, they've, they've got a very good track record of picking winners, haven't they? So yeah, really interesting, incredibly candid, thought-provoking stuff there, James. And yeah, a lot of our listeners will be nodding along, you know, uh, hopefully seeing maybe some VCs take note of that, the ones that, that need to hear it. Sadly, we're at our wrap-up questions, James. So in one sentence, what do you think the future holds for Mana? I think it's that we will build a world where everyone can make a living by doing what they love. Love it. Love it. And if you could be mentored by one person, dead or alive, who would it be and why? I think it would be someone like Jürgen Klopp, uh, the Liverpool manager. Oh, what a shout. Yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, I, you know, I want to, and I'm not even a Liverpool fan, I'm actually a gunner, <laughs> but I, I want to know how to be both tactically sound, which he is, emotionally empathetic and capable of rousing like a whole group, a collective, millions of people towards the same goal, right? That, that's just amazing. Like he balances all those things so well. So yeah, probably him. Yeah, it, uh, such a good, good shot. He's somebody, one of those people that you just want to go for a beer with and just pick his brains. Jürgen, if you're listening, come on the podcast. I'd love to spend an hour with you. Finally, James, what's the best piece of advice you've ever received that you want to pass on to our listeners today? Weirdly, it's, it's actually something I've read. Uh, it's not something someone said to me. Uh, it's, it's actually a, a, a sort of strategy from Charlie Munger of all people. It's basically fold early when the odds are against you and you don't know something that others don't. Double down hard when you have a big edge in what you know and can do. And I think often what's happening is we are very good at making the wrong bets. <laughs> right? We double down when we don't really know whether it's going to work out and we struggle to fold when things are not going well. And the key thing, I think, is that, is that connection, that you fold early when the odds are against you and you don't feel like your understanding of an issue actually gives you an edge on the problem. But then you double down hard when you know that you have an edge, even when the odds are actually very difficult, right? So it's really optimizing for that mental edge on something that then gives you that confidence to, to make the bets. James, thank you so much. It's been a wide ranging conversation, a fascinating uh, insights, great mentorship. You really are a founder to keep an eye on and I'm very excited to see what you're going to go build. Yeah, I've, I've thoroughly enjoyed this conversation and I'm sure our listeners will do too. So thank you for joining us. Thanks so much, James. It was amazing. Really enjoyed it. Thanks so much. I love catching up with James. He's got such a great energy and a fascinating background. And I really appreciated his candor and amazing insights that he shared in today's episode. I'd love to hear what you thought of James and the podcast series so far. So please do feel free to send your feedback and suggest any guests that you'd love to hear from in future episodes to info at jbmc.co.uk. Plus, if you're a big fan of the podcast and would like to become a 40-minute mental ambassador, please do drop our producer Hannah a line at hannah at jbmc.co.uk. Finally, don't forget to tune in next Wednesday when we're joined by Elizabeth Uwe Binene 
the multi-award-winning author and columnist of the Financial Times, and also a founder herself of an exciting new startup called Storia. Here's a little snippet of what you can look forward to. Not everybody will understand, but sometimes it's not your job to tell someone and convince people, it's to show them. If you build for everyone, no one will come. Some of the challenges that I found is probably loneliness. Loneliness. 